Have you ever asked yourself in a time of trial or confusion, God, what are you doing? Maybe not ask yourself, maybe ask God, God, what are you doing? Why are you doing this in my life right now? And maybe in a time of transition between jobs, maybe the unexpected death of a loved one, maybe in a time of personal spiritual uncertainty, surely we all have and have had moments like this where we cannot see the light at the end of the tunnel and where God and his wisdom has not clearly shown us what he intends in all that is happening in our lives. Friends, the church in Acts was no exception to this. I think sometimes we read the book of Acts and and we see some of the things that are done in the course of the church and the lives of the apostles. We say, well, of course they were able to do all these things. They just, they knew God was going to do that. But that's not quite the case in Acts. God does things and the church endures things regularly throughout this book and in the early centuries even of the church that God did not clearly tell them that they would go through. Then, even as now, God did not reveal all that he intended and what he allowed and ordained to happen to his people and in the world. But hindsight, it is said, is always twenty twenty, And with humility, we can regularly look back at the hardships of this life when time has passed to see the faithfulness and the provision of God in ways to us in ways that we could not imagine that could be true when we were struggling through those things. From our passage today, I would exhort us, as we see the church going through a difficult time and things in the world happening in Acts chapter 12 that don't seem to, in the moment, make sense, I would encourage us that in all seasons of life together, the church should, even as we see the the church in Acts doing this, should trust the purposes of God through devoted prayer and for the advancement of the gospel message, even when we're not sure what God is doing. As a result of seeing that in this text today being exhorted in that way, I would hope that we would be challenged to live with gospel purpose, with gospel intentionality in any and every circumstance, devoted to prayer, devoted to the glory of God, and to the multiplication of the gospel as we wait for God in his time to show us what it is that he has been doing. Turning now our our eyes and our minds, our hearts to God's word, would you stand with me as we read? Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 25. There Luke, continuing in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. And so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him, that is Peter, out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along the street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. 
When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes. He took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. The word of the Lord, you may be seated. As we look at this section of Scripture this morning, we're going to look at it in three parts. First, verses 1 through 19, then verses 20 through 23, and then finally verses 24 and 25. And as I spent time and study this week uh, and looking at uh, this passage, I came to ask three different questions, one of each of the sections that we're going to look at. This morning, first in verses 1 through 19, this narrative of Peter uh, uh, being arrested and then delivered from prison. I come to ask this question, what are God's purposes in persecution? What is God doing in persecution? There are two ways to understand God's purposes in persecution, in hardship, when the church suffers for the name of Jesus. There are first his unknown purposes. As this text opens this morning, we're treated to the persecution of Herod against the church. The Herod that is mentioned here is Herod Agrippa I, the grandson of Herod the Great, who ordered the death of baby boys throughout all Judea around the time of Jesus' birth. Now, Agrippa I, grandson to Herod the Great, was close friends with the emperor of the day, Claudius. They went to school together in Rome. And Agrippa benefited from that relationship with Claudius in receiving rulership, or kingship, if you will, of Judea in the early 40s A.D. Herod Agrippa was a consummate politician and opportunist. And in order to please the Pharisees, the Jewish rulers of Judea, whom he had some respect for, he began persecuting the church there in Jerusalem. Now, Herod's is a more severe persecution than Saul's earlier in Acts, in that Herod actually has James, the disciple of Jesus and brother of John, arrested and executed by beheading, put to death by the sword, Luke tells us. And when Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, he went ahead and had Peter arrested also, likely with the same intention. Though in Peter's case... His arrest does not end in execution, but as we know from the text today, he is delivered from prison. So why then does God allow in this text, in this passage, in this event in the life of the church, two of his apostles to suffer so differently? What is God doing in allowing one of the apostles, James, to be killed and the other one only to be arrested? 
That doesn't seem very fair, does it, God? And we could ask the same question of God's purposes and persecution around the world even today. Why does God allow some believers in places like India and Syria, and even like those several brothers who were beheaded by ISIS on a beach in Libya not so many months ago, to endure suffering like that, but on the other hand, to allow the vast majority of Christians in the West, like us, to worship and evangelize untouched? Why does God do that? Why does he allow those people to be treated differently, people who are all trusting Christ, following Jesus, all the same. Why are some subjected to, allowed to go through torturous execution and imprisonment, and others left virtually untouched? Well, for the same reason that James is killed and Peter is arrested only to be freed here in Acts chapter 12, today we must say that there are some purposes of God and persecution that that are beyond our ability to understand in this life. God does not always reveal his purposes to us. And friends, even in the face of persecution, even in the face of hardship, we should learn to content ourselves with this, knowing that God is still infinitely good and just. And though we do not know what his purposes may be, we can know definitively that they are good. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and this text will be on the screen behind me. There Paul writes, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Paul says again in Philippians chapter 4 verses 11 through 13. He says, I have learned, and this Paul writes from prison as he's in chains writing to the church at Philippi. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, because I can do all things through him, through Christ who strengthens me. Peter writes in his first letter to the church, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. He says, in this you rejoice. Speaking of their salvation, in your salvation and the hope you have of eternal life with God, you rejoice in that, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Dear friends, what is God doing in persecution? What are his purposes in persecution? Well, very frankly, some of those purposes cannot be known. Some of them are unknown to us and will remain unknown to us until we see him again in the resurrection. But that does not mean that what God is doing is not good. Just because we cannot understand it or may not understand it in this life doesn't mean that God cannot still be trusted. God does not have only unknown purposes in persecution. He also has known purposes in persecution. There are some things that he does make clear to us that he is doing when he allows, when he ordains that his church should suffer. First of all, it is to drive us to prayer. God allows us to suffer that we might be driven to prayer. In verses 5 and 12 of our passage this morning, we see that the church in Jerusalem was gathered and offering earnest prayer for Peter as he is arrested. In verse 12, after Peter is delivered and and makes his way to Mary's house, we find there the believers still praying for Peter. Church prayer is a vital and inseparable part of the Christian life. It is an ever so helpful tool in times of suffering. You know this, that prayer is the means by which we commune with our Creator and Savior. And what's more, God delights in our prayer to Him for help, for sustenance, for wisdom and endurance. Church, we can say without question that at least one of God's known purposes in persecution is to drive his church, to drive his people to their knees, to seek his will and his glory and his purposes in all things. 
God has created us to know him, and we come to grow in our knowledge of him as we pray, even in times of difficulty. God, part of God's known purposes and persecution is to drive us to prayer, but secondly, is to demonstrate his power. God intends persecution, allows persecution of his church in order that he might demonstrate his power. Peter's deliverance from prison is entirely of God in this passage here. Did you notice that Peter is a passive participant in every aspect of his deliverance? Surely we should call it a deliverance and not an escape, right? Because as he is sleeping, it is an angel that appears to him. He is struck and awakened by the angel. Catch that, the the Peter is sleeping so soundly that the angel has to kick him in the ribs to wake him up. He is loosed from his chains miraculously. He doesn't pick a lock with a bobby pin. He is led out of prison by the angel with the iron doors of the prison that open up into the city, opening of their own accord. Peter does nothing in this deliverance. He is the passive participant and recipient of all that God is doing. All of this miraculous rescue is of God and his power to work wonders is displayed to the believers that are there at Mary's house who are gathered there to pray for Peter when he comes knocking on their door. And God's power to deliver and to answer the prayer of his people even takes his people by surprise in this passage. When Peter arrives at the house, starts knocking at the gate, asking to be let in. And there we meet the servant girl, Rhoda, whose name translated means Rose, So excited to hear Peter's voice and the knocking of his fist at the door that she leaves him knocking outside in the street to go tell the others that he is there. Now, this is funny. You should read this story and laugh a little bit, right? Here is Peter having just been delivered from prison. He's a fugitive by the Lord's will. People are going to begin looking for him very quickly, and he's out in the street knocking, waiting to be let in, while Rhoda goes to wake up everybody and say, hey, he's here, he's here. The believers are devoted there in Mary's house to praying for Peter. But they don't seem to think that God's will is to deliver him. They've already seen James executed by the sword. Peter's been arrested. They know what Herod's intentions are most likely, or at least they're assuming them. They're thinking that Peter is very likely going to be dead soon. And so their prayers are probably something along the lines of, God be with your servant. God strengthen Peter. Uh, give Give him patience and endurance in this time of trial. Surely they were probably praying for deliverance, but it doesn't seem that they actually expected it. In fact, they try to convince Rhoda that it's only Peter's ghost, his his guardian angel, uh, that is knocking at the door, and not actually Peter in the flesh. Meanwhile, Peter, the fugitive by God's will, still outside, still knocking on the door. Finally, he is led in, and there we read to the amazement of the church. The people were amazed. Peter's here, he's alive. Friends, sometimes God works in the course of persecution to answer the prayer of his people through the demonstration of his power and protection of those who trust in Christ by delivering them from certain harm. Sometimes God allows his church to suffer, to endure suffering, so that he might miraculously deliver them and prove that he is powerful to do so. Jesus' parting words to his disciples from Matthew 28, verse 20, I think ring again in our ears here. When Jesus said, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, certainly Jesus is with Peter, with the church in this moment, demonstrating his power, not just over sin and death, but even his power over people and over circumstances to do what he desires to do for his glory and for the edification of the church. 
Sometimes God allows us to go through suffering, to drive us to prayer, to demonstrate his power, but also, and this not explicitly in our passage this morning, but we do know from other places of Scripture, also to help us identify with Christ. That persecution helps us to identify with Jesus. Paul said of his own sufferings in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8-11, through 11, There he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, Paul says, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, Paul says, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And as we saw from 1 Peter even earlier, God uses our trials for the purification of our faith. James, before he was killed in Acts chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, James shared in the suffering of Christ who was rejected as Messiah. Peter, in his arrest and in his later death in Rome, as church tradition holds being crucified upside down, Peter shared in the rejection and opposition that his Lord and Messiah suffered for the truth of Jesus' identity and for the gospel. As Paul says, even the very best of this life has, has to offer is garbage compared to what is gained in knowing more of Christ as we suffer for his sake. Part of God's purposes in suffering is to identify us, help us to identify with Christ his son who died for our sins. That we might share in his suffering and as we share in his suffering might also share in the glory of the resurrection when he raises us too on the last day. What are God's purposes in persecution? We can know some of them, others of them we won't ever know, but we should take Joy should take hope in knowing that whatever God's purposes are, they are for our good and they are for his glory. Moving to verses 20 through 23, the narrative, the scene here shifts a little bit, moves away from the, the now delivered Peter to Herod Agrippa again and his ultimate demise. And in reading this, I, I found myself asking uh, myself the question this week, why does God judge so severely? Herod dies at the end of this passage, not, not, a, uh, not, not a good death by any means, eaten by worms, as Luke says. Why does God judge so severely? In verses 19 and 20, Luke tells us that Herod, the persecutor, left Jerusalem and went to the region of Caesarea, to the port cities of Tyre and Sidon. Now, Herod Agrippa's reign encompassed these cities as well as, as part of his, his overall, so the reach of his kingdom, if you would, in that day. And they were, Tyre and Sidon, these port cities, dependent upon his governance for distribution of food and for economic security. Luke tells us there was some disturbance between the Sidonians and Herod, likely some sort of economic quarrel that is ultimately quelled, it's resolved in these verses, by the mediation of Blastus, one of Herod's servants. It's probably bribed by the people of Tyre and Sidon to, uh, to sway Herod to make a decision in their favor. Then on an appointed day, sometime after this uh, uh, issue was resolved, Herod appeared before the people to give a speech. Now the Jewish historian Josephus, ancient Jewish historian Josephus, tells us that it was on a day devoted to honoring Caesar that Herod appeared before the people. And he appeared before the people in a shirt made entirely of silver. He gave what was, that, that does seem like a fashion faux pas, 
like the weight of it and the heat of it aside, it just seemed, that's a little too Lady Gaga. That's a little too Katy Perry for me. But there, dressed in silver, Herod gives a speech, a speech that was uh, apparently quite rousing. The crowd seeking to placate, to flatter the man upon whom their economic security depended, flattered him by saying in verse 22, This is the voice of a God, not of a man. As Josephus records, the people said, This is the voice of no mere mortal. And we are then told by Luke that immediately Herod is judged by the Lord, dies by a tapeworm infestation. Josephus, again, the historian, corroborates this event, saying that as Herod finished his speech, he was struck with a severe pain in his belly, went to his chamber, laid down in his bed, never got up again, died five days later. Why does God judge Herod so severely here? Why so severely? Well, first of all, because, friends, sinners sin severely. Or put it another way, because every sin is severe. Herod's sins are twofold in the passage that we have before us. First, on the one hand, he's relentlessly persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. And we know from Christ's own words to Saul back in Acts chapter 9 on that road to Damascus that to persecute the church is to persecute Jesus himself. This is a severe sin, but Herod adds to that sin of persecution, adds to it robbery of God's glory. As the people flatter Herod, as being more than a mere mortal. This is the voice of a God, not the voice of a man. Herod neither rebukes the people nor actively encourages them, but rather passively receives the glory that they give him. Oh, this seems nice. Those are nice words. Yeah, sure, I'll I'll take that. Contrast Herod's actions here with being called a God, with being worshipped as a God, with those of Peter, who in Acts chapter 10 is greeted by Cornelius in Cornelius' house with worship. Cornelius falls down to worship Peter, the apostle who has now come to his house. Peter looks at Cornelius and he says, you stand up, I too am only a man. Herod is not only a persecutor, but he's also a glory thief. His sin is severe. God judges sin severely because sinners sin in severe fashion. But also because, as we see in this verse, God is jealous for his glory. God is jealous for his glory. Listen, sin, our sin, is not ultimately the fault of Satan. Sin is not the fault of Satan. Certainly, The devil does tempt persons to sin, but he is not the cause of, nor is he the responsible party for our sin. So stop blaming the devil for your sin. Stop blaming Satan because you sin. You are responsible. Each one of us is responsible. This is a truth that my wife and I find ourselves repeating often now to our three-year-old daughter, who regularly wants to blame her disobedience on Satan. Now, by the grace of God... By the grace of God, our youngest daughter is growing in her knowledge of Scripture and of God and of spiritual things and of Christ and the gospel. And this is all good. We praise the Lord for it. And, and by the way, just uh, I want to say thank you to those of you who are her Sunday school teachers and her Praise Factory teachers. Much of her growth in Christ is because of your investment in her life as well. We praise the Lord for the things that she is learning about Him and about Scripture. We even praise God for the truths that she's learning about who Satan is and what he does except for this. Somehow she has uh, uh, made up in her mind that it is Satan who causes her to sin. She will literally say, I kid you not, Satan made me do it. Like, Olivia, why did you hit your sister? Satan made me do it. 
I mean, that's what comes out of her mouth. And we have to say, no, dear, he didn't make you do it. You are responsible. You're the one who hit your sister. You made that decision. Satan doesn't make you do anything. Friends, Satan may have tempted Herod to passively receive the deification, the God-making by the people that day when he gave his speech. But it was Herod who in his own heart contented himself to steal God's glory and to set himself on par with the Creator. Herod is a glory thief. And Christians, so are each each and every one of us. Every sin that we commit is a defiant protest against the authority and sovereignty of Almighty God. Every lie, every thoughtless word, every adulterous thought entertained and acted upon is a declaration to God that His intentions, that His will and His moral perfections are not as perfect, not as glorious, not as worthy of worship and obedience as our own. God says in Isaiah 48, 11, My glory I will not give to another. God is jealous for his glory, church. Certainly, we think poorly of that word jealousy in our current context. But when it comes to God, we need to apply a definition of jealousy to his character that is unstained by the sins of jealous men. We need to redeem that word jealousy when we, when we use it to speak of who God is and of his character. The Christian theologian J.I. Packer is of some help to us here. Packer says that the kind of jealousy we often think of in our sinful minds is the sort of jealousy that says, I want what you've got and I hate you because I haven't got it. That's usually what the, the kind of sentiment we mean when we're talking about jealousy. These are the words of a glory thief to be sure. God, I want what you've got. I want your glory, and I hate you because I haven't got it. And I'm going to do whatever I can to get a little bit of your glory for myself. But, Packer says, there's another sort of jealousy that is not marked by selfishness or covetousness, but rather by a zeal, by an intense energy and desire to guard and protect and maintain something of infinite goodness and worth. We know from Genesis that man and woman are made in the image of God to know, to love, to worship him, and to be active and intentional communicators of his glory in the world. We are made in his image, to image him to the world, to be communicators of God's glory into creation and back in praise to him. Because God has made us to reflect his glory, which is, of course, all of his goodness, all of his moral perfection, God then loves us intensely. He loves us intensely because we reflect, we are intended to reflect his character into, the cre- into creation. This is true, that God is most glorified in and through us when we find ourselves wanting nothing other than to do what he has created us to do. God finds his greatest glory when our greatest satisfaction is in him and in glorifying him with every fiber of our being, every aspect of our lives. Mankind is an expression of the glory of God. Jonathan Edwards would say a communication or a manifestation of the glory of God. But we are not created to receive God's glory for ourselves, but rather to enjoy Him as we give glory back to Him and reflect His glory into the world. In that way, we are sort of conduits of the glory of God. We don't receive any of it. We don't keep any of it for ourselves. We are just a pass-through for God to be glorified through our, our recognition of His glory in the world and our praise of Him and through our knowledge of who He is and the communication of that knowledge back out into the world. 
Besides God, friends, there is no being worthy of the love, knowledge, and worship that God is worthy of. There is no being worthy of the glory that God is worthy of. And because He is good and just, God will protect His glory from thievery, abuse, and insult. And for these severe sins against His own person and against His moral perfection, God judges justly and severely even those He loves when they threaten to rob Him of His duly deserved glory. God judges sin severely, especially in the life of Herod. Because Herod's sin is severe against the church and against God. But the nature of his sin is a sort that, that incites God's anger in a way, and justly, rightly so, in a way that causes Herod's life to be cut short. He tries to, to make himself what only God can be, to receive for himself what only God can receive. And he's eaten by worms and breathes his last. And we look at all this, the persecution of the church, the, the, the martyrdom of James, the arrest of Peter, and the deliverance, the, the severe judgment of, of Herod. And we ask ourselves, what is God working toward in all of this? What, what, is, what is happening here? God, go back to the question we asked early as we, as we began uh, our, our time here. God, what are you doing? What's the purpose in all of this? And we see in verses 24 and 25 the very clear answer to this from the pen of Dr. Luke. What is God working toward in all of Acts chapter 12? Simply this, clearly this, the spread of the gospel. Verse 24 says, But the word of God increased and multiplied. Final two verses of our text today are simple and clear, and they set the stage for what will be the next major movement of the book of Acts as the gospel goes to the nations. We find here that in all that is happening in Acts chapter 12, from the death of James to the imprisonment and deliverance of Peter to the death of Herod, all of it, Luke says, is for the spread of the gospel. The persecution of the church reveals to us God's glory, His divine power in preserving and purifying the church. And the death of Herod lifts again the dark cloud of oppression in order for Christians to boldly and publicly share the gospel in broad and sweeping ways throughout Judea and Samaria. The result of the events of Acts chapter 12 is ultimately the growth and multiplication of the word of God, Luke says. The gospel, that good news that God forgives the sins and grants eternal life to all who surrender in obedience, love, and repentance to the Lord Jesus. That's good news. When you understand that God is working toward the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth, which, by the way, Albuquerque, New Mexico, is about as far from Jerusalem that, that you can get on this globe. We are the ends of the earth. God uses persecution in the life of the church in Acts chapter 12 and the death of Herod so that you, living in 2018 in Albuquerque, New Mexico, can hear, receive, believe, and trust Jesus and be saved. Amen. Acts 12 is for your good. So we all now look at the persecution that we see here in Acts chapter 12 and say, God, this is terrible. Why would you allow your church to go through it? Well, knowing on the other side of things what God is doing in the midst of all of this, right, we, we stand back and we say, praise God. Praise God. God, I don't know why, why you use this in this way, but, but, but I trust that it was the best way to get the gospel to me in Albuquerque, New Mexico in 2018. It was for your church to suffer 2,000 years ago in Acts chapter 12. God, I don't understand it, but I know that you do. And I know that ultimately, it's for my good because I know Christ now. 
I have opportunity to, to repent of my sin, to trust in Jesus, to be forgiven, to know eternal life, and a life with, with deep and intense purpose now, which is to glorify you in all that I am and do and know. And God, there's nothing better in my life than this. So I, who am I to question what you're doing in Acts chapter 12? I don't know why you're doing it, but I know that it's good. I know that the results are good. All of this God does and will continue to do through his people, through the church, out of, th- out of whom he calls some like Saul and Barnabas and John Mark here in verse 25. And as we'll see in Acts chapter 13 in a few weeks to the specific work of missionary travel and global evangelism. Acts chapter 12 begins with one of the strongest threats that any man can muster against the gospel. And it ends with the relentless march of the word of God throughout the world. The gospel truly is unstoppable. And as C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia is fond of saying, Aslan is on the move in Acts 12. Jesus is on the move in Acts chapter 12. So what are God's purposes in persecution? Some of them are known, some of them are unknown. We, know, we can know that whether we know them or don't, that all of them are for our good and for his glory. Why does God judge sin severely? Well, because sin is a severe offense to God as we attempt to rob him of the glory that he is due. But what is God doing in all of, of not just Christian history, but all of history? What is God doing in and through all of the, the epochs and, and, and eras of, of human life and history on this planet? He is working for the spread of the gospel so that sinful men and women who by their own have spurned a relationship with God might hear the good news that God took on flesh in Jesus Christ to pay for their sins on the cross, be raised again in three days, so that any who would trust in him would have their sins forgiven, would be in a right relationship with God where they can know, love, worship, glorify him again as they've been designed to do. That's what God is working toward. A lot of that's out in the abstract, right? I mean, these are principles that that we know are true, but don't necessarily uh, intersect our lives in very tangible ways all the time, day to day. Good things for guiding our thinking and our study of God's word. But how then do we shape our actual lives? Like, let's taking Acts chapter 12, putting it in blue jeans and tennis shoes. What What does it mean? How does it impact us? How do we shape our lives by what we know from Acts chapter 12? Well, first of all this, that in all seasons and circumstances, we are to trust the purposes of God with prayer and perseverance. Trust the purposes of God with prayer and perseverance. Now, this may seem like it's still a little bit in the abstract, trust God, but it's not. It's it's actually very concrete. Uh, day to day, our lives are relatively uncertain. We can plan for all sorts of things to take, take place. But, but really, we know that between here and our drive home or to wherever we go for lunch or whatever we might do this afternoon, any of a number of unplanned for things may take place. And so we need to trust God in all seasons and circumstances, trust the purposes of God with prayer and perseverance. Listen, I know that many of you are going through hard times right now. Jobs seem insecure, family relationships are strained, health is failing, and uncertainty appears to be lurking around every corner of your life at times. Let me encourage you today from what we've seen in Peter and his life and in the church as they find peace and the ability to persevere in hardship through pressing into their communion with God in prayer. Too often in my own life, when I face troubles or difficulties, things that I didn't plan for, I look to myself and my own abilities and my own wisdom to work through a situation. I've got a you know, bachelor's degree, two master's degrees, you know, family that's you know, not, not starving day to day. I've got it together. I can figure this out, right? 
And most of the time when I do that, I find myself frustrated, angry, and in a worse place than where I started. The reason that so many of us do the same thing is because either we don't think that God can really do anything about our situation, that God can't really do anything about this unplanned circumstance that seems to have intersected my life, or that we've somehow bought the lie that comes from the pit of hell that says, God helps those who help themselves. Church, if you believe Romans chapter 8, 28, that God works all things for good for those who are called according to his purposes, then we should be able to sleep soundly in prison like Peter. We should be able to rest assured in our prayer that God hears us and is working out his will in the lives of Christians for his glory and for our good. Trust the Lord, friend. Trust him. Trust him for your salvation from sin, yes, and for eternal life, absolutely. But also trust him to do what is right and good each and every day of your life. Secondly, Beware the vicious trap of pride and people-pleasing. Beware the vicious trap of pride and people-pleasing. The trappings of a celebrity culture are nothing new. Herod was as much a product of that culture as any. He loved celebrity, and the people of his day loved their celebrities. Yet in all the glory that is given and received in a culture like that, in a culture like ours, where people are famous just for being famous. None of the glory that is traded around in that culture ultimately goes to whom it is ultimately due. The trap of pride and celebrity that Herod fell into tempts pastors and preachers and teachers of God's word even today. Friends, it tempts me today. And we must fight hard against it lest we lose our lives to it and fall into the judgment of a righteous God. But at the same time, each of us must guard our hearts and our minds also against seeking to please or to create alliances or only to listen to those teachers or preachers who are especially gifted. In our celebrity culture, it is not uncommon to meet a Christian, so-called Christian, out on the street who would say that their pastor, even though they live in Albuquerque, New Mexico, is Rick Warren because they listen to his podcasts out of Saddleback Church in Southern California. Or Matt Chandler out of... Village Church in Texas, or David Platt, who's the uh, president of the International Mission Board. In an era, in a culture that creates celebrity pastors, we also find Christians who chase the celebrity of, of celebrity pastors. We have the capacity, even the tendency, to find excuses not to attend worship of our local church because the music and preaching are, quote-unquote, better at another church or at the church that I watch online. We are tempted to, we have the capacity to attend Sunday school, but not worship because of some personal preference. I'll go to Sunday school because I like the people there and the teaching's good. I don't want to go to worship because the chairs are this color and they're of this angle for my back and the pastor uh, doesn't tuck his shirt in every week. Or sometimes we attend worship, but not Sunday school because because of some perceived inferiority. Though not, in, though, though, though not a doctrinal error, there is by some perceived an inferiority in the teaching that, that occurs in small groups or in Sunday school classes. Listen, I've heard these things. I've seen these things in our church. People say things it's not as, like it's not as good as the preaching in worship. Or I can get better teaching from a podcast or a sermon recording of another preacher than I can from the fellowship and the instruction that happens in my small group in my Sunday school class. When we start looking to gain an audience... As teachers and leaders, 
We who have been entrusted by God to teach his word. When we start looking to gain an audience to hear what we have to say, or we begin reveling more in the glory that we receive after a compelling speech or blog or sermon, we then, friends, fellow leaders, trade the glory due to God for the padding of our own pride. And when we find ourselves joining churches or attending particular small groups or having weird patterns of worship and or small group attendance that make no sense whatsoever because of who a teacher or a preacher is and not for what is being taught and the fellowship of other believers there, then we become guilty of robbing God's glory to give it to people that we think are more talented as though God does not or cannot use ordinary people. Let me say, as the senior pastor of this church, I'm incredibly grateful for the many ordinary people who faithfully teach Sunday school and Bible study each and every Sunday morning. They're not doing it for themselves. They're not doing it for a reputation. They're not doing it that they would gain any sort of glory from it. And I know it because I know these men and women. God uses, and I am proud to say, glad to say, that God uses the very ordinary people at First Baptist West Albuquerque to faithfully and soundly teach his word to his people week by week. Praise God. Dear friends, I I would exhort you today, learning from the mistakes of Herod and even from the temptations in our own lives, find the joy of obeying God as you humble yourself to imperfect but sound teaching from ordinary and obedient brothers and sisters. Find the joy of obeying God and humbling yourself to fellowship with ordinary, obedient brothers and sisters in and around the Word of God. Third, first we saw trust God in all seasons and circumstances, His purposes through prayer and perseverance. Second, beware, put yourself on guard against the vicious trap of pride and people-pleasing. Third, Join the purpose of your life to God's gospel purposes. You want to know how to live Acts chapter 12 in your own life? You join the purpose of your life to the purpose of God in the cosmos. Between the years 1642 and 1647, those who had begun to see the church through the process of reformation and a return to to faithfulness to the word of God, they wrote a teaching tool called a catechism to be used in teaching children and adults alike those Bible truths which are essential to ensuring a lifetime of sound doctrine, that those who learn those things might not ever waver in their understanding of the Word of God and its implications and application for their life. The result of this, uh, of this work to create this learning tool is known as the Westminster Catechism. And the Westminster Catechism, the shorter version, it teaches by asking and answering questions. So in the shorter catechism, I think there are 107, 114, something like that, questions. Uh, and each of them has a biblical answer with, with uh, verses and, and passages of Scripture that go along with it to teach essential Christian doctrine. You know what the first question of the catechism is? The first thing that children and new believers, adults, are to know and to learn from Scripture according to the Westminster Catechism? What is, this is the question, what is the chief end of man? That is to say, what is the ultimate purpose of our creation by God and life with Him? What is it that I've been designed to do according to Scripture? The answer is profound in its simplicity. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We have been created by God as knowing, loving, worshiping creatures 
with the intention by God of using those gifts that he has given to glorify him and to enjoy him. Friends, that's what we are designed for. There's a particular beauty in a tool being used for its intended purpose. And there's a particular ugliness when that tool is used for unintended purposes. There's something beautiful about watching a skilled roofer drive nails through shingles with one sure swing of his hammer. But something particularly and just as equally ugly about watching that roofer trying to scramble eggs with that same tool. In persecution and in prosperity, through prayer and perseverance, with others and alone, we have been made by God to glorify Him in our knowing, loving, and worshiping Him. And through our spread of that same realized purpose as we make disciples of Jesus Christ who will do the same. Your best life is when the purposes of your life are attached to, are conformed to, are joined and united with the purposes of God and glorifying Himself and saving sinners through faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, the increase and multiplication of the word of God in Acts, the spread of the gospel in Acts and around the world today is a prime means of bringing God glory and living out our intended purpose. You wonder, how, how do I begin glorifying God in my life today? Start talking about the gospel. Start talking about Jesus with people who don't know him. Brothers and sisters, let us join the purpose of our life I pray to the eternally glorifying purpose of God and and the eternally satisfying purpose for our own living in seeing God save sinners as we proclaim the gospel to a world that desperately needs to know Jesus the Savior who gave his own life for their forgiveness. Let's pray.